Good morning. How y'all feeling today? All right. I see some of y'all had y'all Wheaties. The rest of y'all didn't. So how the rest of you feeling this morning? Y'all all right? Amen. Amen. Uh, well, my name is Pastor D.A. Horton. I've had the privilege uh, to be with the young people uh, the past few evenings and opening up the Word of God, communicating uh, challenges to them to surrender the idols of their life, anything or anyone that has been competing with Jesus, if they know Jesus, if they don't, calling them to faith and repentance, to turn from their sin, and to embrace Christ Jesus as Lord. And the reality of that is to prime the pump so that this morning, all of us from every generation present, every family that is represented, every community, every neighborhood, every school, every place of work would see that God is alive through the way that his children live out obedience to the great commission Jesus has called us to. And so what I would like is if you're physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, talking through the great commission. And if you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. I want to thank the sisters. There's been a few sisters that have helped me. I have some books and resources available in the lobby that deal with everything from how to proclaim the gospel to discipleship to how do we apply the gospel to every area of our marriage out in the lobby. And I always forget to say that, but I want to express gratitude to the sisters who stepped up to help with that uh, so you can see them after the services. As we look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20, please allow me the grace to read this passage and then we will pray and then we will work through this text. The word of God says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, as we hear from your word, Holy Spirit, we ask that we would hear from you. And it is my prayer that I would just be simply a microphone to amplify what you were trying to speak to each and every hearer in this place. And I pray, Father God, through the proclamation of your word, that it would be handled with care and with concern for the hearts of the hearers and the lives that are represented here. And Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you would mobilize every single one of us, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our age, regardless of our socioeconomic reality, that you would mobilize us to be doers of the word by seeking to make disciples of every nation. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the context that we live in, in the United States of America, there's always this constant change. Families move in and out of communities. The, de the demographic changes take place. Certain parts of our communities are being rebuilt and revitalized. Others are still neglected. We see generations come and go. Even as a lot of my aunties and my uncles are passing away, I have to deal with the reality that I am now the generation of the aunties and uncles. And Looking through that lens and me remembering running around playing with my cousins when we were kids, now we're grown, married, and we have children, and we've replaced that generation. And all you see is constant transition and constant change. 
And in the reality of all this constant change, I feel like in my life I'm looking for something that is stable, something that is steady, something that I can bank on that will never change. And, and when I look to the Word of God, which I recognize is an outflow of God who breathed the Scriptures into existence for us, is that we say theologically He is immutable, which means He does not change. So it's comforting to know that our God does not change. And it's comforting to know that this commission that Jesus has called his church to fulfill over three millennia ago remains constant no matter the change of our community, the demographics, or even our lives. So the question is, do we obey the culture that is changing or do we obey Christ who is changeless? And the reality of that puts a burden on our hearts to not compartmentalize Christianity to be something that we do for two hours on Sunday. But rather we would look at the gospel that consumes every nuance of our life. The way that we speak. The idols that we run to for comfort during moments of crisis and stress and pressure. The way that we speak to our children. The way that our children speak to us. The food that we eat. The hobbies that we have. Everything should be filtered through the lens of the gospel. This is the faith that Jesus died and resurrected for, that we would have a freedom in God through Jesus to not be bound to the idols that we used to worship that don't love us back before we met Jesus. But that carries a responsibility and a burden because, honestly, we naturally evangelize about the things that excite us. I can't go anywhere these days without somebody trying to sell me essential oils. Y'all too. And if you sell essential oils, I ain't throwing no shade on you. I'm just saying, hey, it's just a reality. Your favorite sports team, your favorite hobby, like you watched a good movie. Like we naturally talk about the things that excite us. But when I talk to Christians in America, I don't hear a lot about Jesus because Jesus simply doesn't excite us anymore. And the reality of Jesus not exciting us to allow us to share our faith then has a greater detriment because if we're not sharing our faith and Jesus is not calling people to faith and repentance through the lips of his followers, then we're not making disciples. You cannot divorce evangelism from discipleship. They are together. And the beauty of that is that when we look at the statistics that are showing the American church, many people claim to be evangelical, but one of the core four tenets of evangelicalism is preaching Christ crucified. But when I read Lifeway studies that say not even 5% of Christians in America polled share their faith one time in the last 12 months, then I'm thinking this term evangelical is something we think it's cologne. We just spray it on when we want to and then take it off once the aroma wears off. But the reality of being a follower of Jesus, whether you identify with the term evangelical or not, has no bearing on our call to live in obedience to Jesus to make disciples. And so some of us may be fearful of, how do I make a disciple? What does that even look like? I've never been discipled. These are all things that we have inherited as American Christians. These are all tensions that when we stand before Christ at the Bema seat, that we won't be able to say, and Jesus will be like, you know what, you're right. I was never discipled. Therefore, I didn't make disciples. Or I was scared to share my faith. Or I, I didn't have the patience to deal with baby Christians. And maybe that's because I was spiritually an infant for the 30 years that I walked with you, Lord. All of those things will not pass through the fire of our carnality at the Bema seat of judgment that we see for believers when they face Jesus Christ. Why? 
because we're armed with the word of God. This is the resource and the tool that you need. And being a believer in Jesus means that you have the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of you. And one of the gifts that he blesses us with is illumination. In the same way that you walked into the sanctuary when the lights were turned on, when there was nobody in here, it was dark. But when the staff came in and they flicked the lights on, it illuminated things that previously were concealed by darkness. When the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we engage the Word of God, He turns the lights on so we can see the practical truths of Scripture in ways that we were not able to see before. And then we have the responsibility to walk in obedience to that which we just read and now understand. All of this to be the appetizer, the mozzarella sticks, the queso blanco, chips and salsa, to the meatiness of what we see in this text. Because you could be saying, okay, yeah, I understand that. This is a weighty responsibility. There's literally 300 plus million people in America. What, what can I do? What can I do as one individual? Well, here's what you can do. You can walk in obedience to what Jesus has commanded you to do as his follower. In Matthew 28, 16 and 17, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. There's two groups, two different emotions. Jesus was beaten beyond recognition just days before. He was laid in the tomb, he was buried, and then he rose. And he told his disciples to meet him at this mountain on Galilee. Now, I won't lie. I would be probably one of those ones who doubted. I would not be super spiritual and ready to worship like this other group of people was. I would be like, bro, can we just step back for a minute and process what all has went on? They beat you. They smacked you. They mocked you. They whipped you. We couldn't even recognize you as a human being, and you were on a cross. You died. The earth shook. The rock split. The veil in the temple was torn in half. This was no small thing. You died. And then you rose. And now you're here, and you've got holes in your hand, and you've got a sword pierced mark in your side, and, and every, everybody's okay with this? Like, I would be like, are, like, what is going on? Everything that I ever knew has ceased to be believable because here you are in front of me. You were dead. Now you're alive. I would have doubts because the word doubt in the Greek means to be hesitant. Hesitant. Because my mind works with, I don't want to take another step unless I understand what I'm stepping towards. What's the goal? What's the next thing? Like, I would be hesitant. I would be doubtful. And then I would have this guilt because I see these people raising their hands, worshiping Jesus, kissing him and loving him and saying, what can we do? How can we serve you? And I'd be like, man, how come I'm not like them? Why does my mind work this way? Is there something wrong with me? Is there secret sin in my life? Like I would be working through all these nuances, sitting there paralyzed by fear, not wanting to take another step because I didn't have clarity. And what I love about Jesus is that he knows that those Two groups are there, those who are ready to worship and those who are reluctant. And he says the same message to both of them. He doesn't give these guys a separate message than these guys. He says, no, both of you listen to what I'm communicating. So the first truth that we have to understand is that Jesus 
has all authority. That's why he says in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, here's what amazes me. Christ took time to give instruction before he ascended back to the Father. Same thing in the upper room. He provided comfort and he promised comfort to his disciples who he told them very explicitly, repeatedly, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me, y'all. But don't worry, I'm going to rise three days later. What do you mean, Jesus? Can I be the greatest in the kingdom? Can I sit to the right? I don't think y'all understand what I'm saying. They're going to arrest me, y'all. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again. Hey, Jesus, can I sit on your right hand? Okay, listen, y'all, one more time. Listen, they're going to arrest me. The chief priest, the elders, they, that's the demographic that's going to arrest me, okay? They are going to crucify me. The Son of Man must be lifted up, okay? I'm going to die, and then I'm going to resurrect. Jesus, aren't the buildings beautiful? Y'all missing it. They constantly missed it. And then when it happened, then they were like, where'd he go? Why did he leave us? Jesus knew that was going to happen, so he comforted them beforehand. And he said, don't worry, I've got to go away so that the comforter can be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I won't abandon you. You know how comforting that is to somebody who wrestles with abandonment issues because of parent wounds in their life? To hear that this good, good father that we sing about on Sundays is not like my bad, bad biological father. Like, I have a daddy in heaven who will never leave me nor forsake me, never abandon me. And that comforts that woundedness that I have in my life. And the reality that God would be forth thinking in that way does not surprise me that in 2018 that these words still speak to our hearts just as powerfully as they did to the immediate groups of disciples in that mountain on Galilee. During times of confusion, Jesus had this regular pattern. This regular pattern of comforting his followers by giving them his word, speaking God's word to them. In our lives, we roll through issues, times of conflict, times of crisis, times of confusion. And I would challenge us to catch a cue from Jesus' rhythm, to take time to be disciplined, to re-engage with God's word. When we stop the spiritual discipline practice of reading scripture, we're not hearing from God. We would rather hear from various voices or we put the burden on somebody else to get a quote unquote word from God to speak to us to give us clarity when the word of God is completely sufficient enough for us to have our hearts put back on Jesus, focus on the cross, receive the truth of the gospel, and then walk by faith where the Holy Spirit leads us. We don't need to hear the voices of the culture. We don't need to hear the voices of celebrities and politicians to know what our move in life is supposed to be. We must know the Word of God. If we know the Word of God, then we know what's the Holy Spirit and we know what's the spirit of the age. But if you're not engaging with the Word of God, you are going to be one who is tossed to and fro like a small boat in the middle of a storm in the ocean. You will have no grounding, no anchoring if you are not engaging with God's Word. Jesus comforts his followers by giving them God's word. And this is what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This word all means complete, total. This word authority means having absolute power and control. What Jesus is telling them is that I have complete, 
total, absolute power and control. Nobody can overthrow my rule. There is no coup d'etat that will be successful in taking me off of the throne of the universe. I have risen. I have defeated death, hell, and the grave in sin, and I give life eternal to all those who will humble themselves and say they can't save themselves, and I'm the only qualified savior for their soul, and I have authority then to give life. I have authority then to give you permission to go do whatever I say. This should have not caught them by surprise. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In Ephesians 1.22, we are reminded, And he put all things subject under his feet. Jesus is the his, and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things of the church, which is the body of the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we recognize Philippians 2, 9, 11, which says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him, which is the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus has all authority. Jesus is the sovereign ruler and king of the universe. Jesus is working to establish a kingdom that we are participants in, that he has called us in commission to go out to the lostness of the world and say, repent and become a citizen of the kingdom or receive the king's wrath. There is no in-between. You either are a citizen or a recipient of wrath. And because God does not rejoice at the passing of a sinner, he wants all to come to repentance. And he says he has all authority to accomplish this reality. So it is a privilege that he includes us in his kingdom work. If Jesus Christ has been given all authority to those who know him personally, then the question must be asked, then what benefit does that give us? If we know Jesus and he has all authority, then how does that, how does that benefit us? Well, I think the answer is this. It's to obey his command without fear because he has given us permission to go and fulfill the Great Commission. He has all authority. The second thing we have to realize is that now we go to all nations. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In the Greek, there's only one verb that's modified by three different participles. Number one, modifiers. Number one, the verb is make disciples. And the way that we make disciples is by going, baptizing, and teaching. The word go is written in such a way as you're going, meaning your life should already be in rhythm. It's almost like when you're driving with the GPS and you're already in progress to go to your destination and it says that there is a delay ahead, here is an alternative route. So as you're going, you redirect as GPS through the satellite system is telling you, avoid this unless you want a 30-minute delay and go this way. And then it navigates you to bypass that so that you can get to your destination in a timely fashion. 
The reality is we are the GPS for our society today. And the Holy Spirit is the one that is guiding us and leading us as we're going because we are gospel-proclaiming servants. He has called us to go out and make Jesus known, to tell the lost world that salvation is a multifaceted gift, and then we give the invitation for the non-believer to put their trust in Jesus Christ to be the Savior of their soul. As we're going, he didn't say stay put. As you're going, as you're living your life, we overcomplicate this by saying, okay, it's just like before we do a New Year's resolution. It's like, okay, you know what? It's Thanksgiving, so I'm just going to pile it on. It's Christmas afterwards, and there's cookies and all kinds of goodies. I'm just going to pile it on. And then on January 1st, I'm just going to automatically somehow metaphysically change my whole posture, unlearn how to love sweets, and now be disciplined to do this. And then when January 3rd comes and we have failed twice already for the year, we're like, oh, forget it. I can't do it anyway. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But there's this, okay, okay, I'm, I'm going to wait and I'm, 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 I'm going to prolong until this, until everything aligns, until everything is right, until my finances are good, until my children are gone, until I get that promotion, or until I retire, that's when I will go. Jesus says, no. You don't set the time frame. You don't start the clock. You are not sovereign. I am sovereign as you live your life. You make disciples. This is not a lawnmower that you have to jumpstart. You're already breathing. If you're breathing, you're qualified to make disciples if you know Jesus. This is not something you push off. This is not something you hand off to the generation after you without showing them what it looks like to make disciples. Go. What I love about this word go, that is it's connected to Jesus having all authority. It's just like when we were in school, and before we would go on a field trip, we had to hand in that permission slip. The permission slip from our parent or guardian, that signature carried the power to say, I am giving my child the privilege and the right to go to this field trip that is going to be chaperoned by school personnel. If we did not turn in that permission slip, we had two choices. Be one of the kids that had to stay behind and stay in school and do the work that was assigned by the substitute or lie and sneak on the bus and face the consequences when you get caught. That permission slip was the power. That permission slip gave you the authority of your parents. It didn't make you the parents. The permission slip did not give you the power. The power was in the signature of your authority figure that said, I give you permission, now you can go. This is exactly what happens when it comes to the Great Commission. Jesus has all authority. This word go is a universal permission slip for every Christian who is alive on this side of eternity to go where Jesus commissions them to go and no one in hell and no one who does not know Christ and those who are in the body of Christ, they cannot tell you no, you cannot make disciples here. No. That is not a reality. If that was a reality, then our missionaries that we send out to close countries would say, I can't go because they won't let me. No, we find creative ways to go. But it's not just across the sea. It's also across the street. Because the mission field is where anybody lives who does not know and worship God. And guess what? That is right here in our own backyard. It may be in your own home. Your home is a mission field if it has non-believers living inside of it, including our very own children, including our spouses, including our parents, including our grandparents. That's the mission field. 
We have to stop compartmentalizing mission to be, oh, I send a check so they can go while I stay comfortable. No, mission says anywhere where non-believers do not know God, that is the mission field, my place of work, the place I get my hair cut, where I do my grocery shopping, where I go to Walmart. If there are non-believers present, I am in a mission field. So the prayer is that Christians would begin to recognize a burden for the lost, a need to make disciples. And the reality of that would cause us to have eyes of missionaries and hearts of evangelists. Because we know that we have the permission of our God to go. We're not called to build a Christian bubble enclave to retreat and become recluse and isolated from the world. We're not called to do that. What we're called to do is go. And when we meet the lost, when we meet the non-believer, we're not called to simply make converts where somebody exchanges one system of faith for another. We're called to make disciples. Disciples of all nations. In order to be a disciple, one must place their trust in Christ Jesus after hearing the gospel proclaimed. They become a follower of Jesus. One must place God and his word as the umpire of their heart, according to Colossians 3, 15 and 16. One must seek to hear God's word, understand it, and obey it, according to James 1, through 25. One who makes disciples shows the new disciple what it looks like to have God's word rule their heart, calling fouls when we have sinfulness and carnality. We show them what it looks like to hear the word of God, to seek how we can apply it, confess when we disobey, and then rejoice for the glory of God when we obey his word. That's discipleship. It's not complex. It's not just meeting for coffee and shooting the breeze for 30 minutes and saying, I've done discipleship. It is literally unveiling your life and saying, look at how the gospel speaks to my whole life. Look at my sinfulness. Look at my carnality. Look at my brokenness. Watch how I get attitudes with my wife and kids. And watch how the Holy Spirit convicts me and call me to repentance if I don't repent. That's discipleship. Discipleship to me is one maturing, present tense, one maturing believer taking an immature believer by the hand and for a season walking in maturity together. And then Launching them to do the same with an immature believer while we find another immature believer and we grow in maturity together. Growing with a greater knowledge of God's word. Growing in a greater deep, meaningful love for Jesus. Breaking our idols together. Confessing our sins. Walking in the fruits of repentance together. Showing the onlooking world that our God exists and the tangible evidence are the billboards of Christians who were seeking to live in humility while asking the non-believer to consider making Jesus their Lord. Because if they see us being honest with our sin and authentic and transparent, and they see that there is a God who forgives his children who still sin and still wrestle with carnality, then perhaps that would drive them to jealousy to say, how can I meet this God who can forgive me for my whole life of sin? How? But they won't know that if we're not living with open, authentic transparency. They won't know that if we compartmentalize our Christianity to just the four walls and brick and mortar of this building. We have to see and show how the gospel saturates our entire lives. Biblical discipleship is intimate. It's sharing our lives. 
It's intense with times of instruction and times of living it out, but it's not indefinite. There must come times when we raise people from being pupils to peers. If we're discipling somebody for 20 years and they're not making disciples, we have to ask ourselves, have I really been discipling them in a way that's in accordance to the Scripture? Have I been discipling them in Christ or discipling them in my carnality? Am I just seeking a comfortable friendship or am I showing them this is how you multiply the essence of our faith in the life of somebody else? As I've done with you, go and do the same. It doesn't mean that you sever the friendship after you've raised them to peer. Is that it shows that there's a different dynamic in the relationship. If they're not making disciples beyond that time that they spend with you, you really have to assess your method of disciple making. I've had to do this. And I call others to do this because it's not about building an enclave. It's about equipping warriors who are living on the front lines of the mission field. Discipleship should be our DNA. All nations, which means every ethnicity. Disciples of Jesus Christ do not withhold discipleship or the gospel from people from different ethnicities, social classes, genders, or preferences, or orientations. No, we should consistently show how the gospel speaks to every nuance of life, consistently telling people that they can come to faith in Jesus and be forgiven for their sins, and then give those who profess faith in Christ the opportunity to be grounded and rooted in the word of God. Nobody, no one ethnicity holds a monopoly on discipleship. This is a kingdom principle, a kingdom made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue that we see in Revelation 7-9. God's Instagram feed is the book of Revelation. And when you read the book of Revelation, you see the city that we're marching towards. The city that we're marching toward is multi-ethnic, multilinguistic, and multi-generational. The reality of our discipleship should mirror and show the onlooking world, this is the place that we are going to spend eternity. This is the place. And that should be reflected in the rhythm of our lives. See, Christ is our chief cornerstone. The whole role of a cornerstone in a building like that we're sitting in is it brings two opposing walls to itself to set so the foundation can be laid. Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. We just sung about it. But the reality of the cornerstone in the building of the church that Jesus is the master architect of is not made of brick and mortar. It's made of living stones, which is us, the souls of those who he saved. And the two opposing walls culturally were those who were Jewish and those who were non-Jewish, which is every other ethnicity in the world, classified as Gentiles. Jesus brought Jews and Gentiles into him to build this new man known as the church. Jesus' work in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 17 says that Jesus' resurrection obliterated every wall of hostility that we as human beings that are sinful have built to segregate ourselves, whether it's on gender, whether it's on social class, or whether it's on ethnicity. Jesus' resurrection destroys all those barriers. So the reality of what that looks like is that it says that he preached peace to those who were near and those who were far off. I remember there was a time when we lived in Kansas City when we held a barbecue at our house and we invited two different families. And this was way back in the day before GPS. This is when you gave people your address and they went on the computer, uh, which was this thing with the little box that you type on. And uh, you went to this website called MapQuest.com. And on MapQuest.com, you put where you were starting and then your destination, and then it gave you a route. And then you hit this button, and there was like this dinosaur of a box called a printer. And it would send out paper with beautiful little colors on it. And it would show you where you go and how you go. 
And then I remember there were the two families, and we gave them our address, and I got a phone call on my house phone, which was this, like this, not a cell phone, but it was this thing that you had to like plug into the wall, and magically I could hear somebody else talk to me. And there was this phone, and it rang, and I answered it, and it was the first family, and they said, hey, we're lost. We don't know how to get to your house. And I said, well, tell me where you are. And they said, oh, we're at this gas station where the church is chicken. I said, oh, you're literally a block away. But... When you go out of the parking lot, there's a divider so you can't cross. So you're going to have to go around and cut around. You know, you know what? There's no U-turn. Just stay where you are. I'm going to come to where you are, and I'm going to find you, and you just follow me back to the house. And that's exactly what happened. Got the second phone call, and it was from a brother and his wife that were coming to fellowship with us. And he picked up, I picked up the phone, and he was like, hey, man, uh, we are lost. My wife has the direction. She done got us lost, bro. I don't know where I'm at. And I said, all right, number one, I want you to look at your wife and say, baby, I blacked out. I don't know what I was talking about. Please forgive me for what I just said to Damon. And he was like, what? I said, dude, if you want to live another day and eat some barbecue, you're going to have to apologize. You just threw her under the bus, bro. Don't do that to her. So he was like, baby, I'm sorry. She's like, "Mm mm-hmm. That's all she said, right? (laughs) So I'm like, ooh, do I really want to give them directions? So I was like, well, tell me where you are. He said, man, we're at this McDonald's, and we're right off the freeway, and da-da-da-da. And I said, oh, okay. I said, you know what? I was like, bro, you're about a few miles down the freeway. I said, stay where you are, because if you you got there, stay where you are. I don't want you risking being somewhere else, all right? So stay where you are. I'm going to hop in my car. I'm going to meet you. Met them in the parking lot of McDonald's. Led them all the way back to the house. We had a great time of fellowship, great time of barbecue. So what does that have to do with the work of Jesus? Ephesians tells us. That Jesus preached peace, peace with God. Because before we know Christ, we're born dead in sin. We're slaves to sin. There's a debt that we can't pay off. We're enemies of God. We're not in the family of God. We're spiritually illegitimate. This is why the doctrine of adoption in Romans 8 comforts us to let us know that when we embrace Jesus, not only are our sins forgiven, but we're eternally declared not guilty, which is what we call justification. And then we are set apart from the world's population, which is called sanctification. And we are promised glorification, which means we will be with Jesus for eternity. But the Holy Spirit also comes to live inside of us. He indwells us. We're given new life, which is called regeneration or being born again. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit begins this breath-by-breath progressive work for the rest of our life called sanctification, where he's helping us unlearn who we used to be to now live as a kingdom citizen to the city that we're going to be. But then in addition to that, it says that we are now adopted into the family of God. Now we are sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. Before we were dead, separated from God, but now we are a part of his family and we're established as royal heirs. In addition to all of this, which is the multifaceted gift of salvation, is the fact that Jesus preached peace to people who were Jewish and all of us who were not Jewish. He did not preach two different gospels. It's the same gospel that you can have peace with God, no longer be at war, no longer be an enemy if you accept me as the cornerstone of your faith. I bring both Jew and Gentile. So that first family, they were the ones who were near. They were a block away, but they didn't know how to get to the house. So I had to leave the house to meet them where they are. The second family was further away. I had to leave the house to meet them where they were. Jesus left heaven to come to earth, and he preached peace to the Jews who were near because they had the word of God, but they didn't know how to get to the household of faith because they had this whole man-made religious structure that pointed people to legalism, not to the Lord. But then Jesus also preached to the non-Jews to say, I am the only way for peace, and he preached the same message. Just like I went to that other family that was further away, Jesus left heaven to come search us out so he can bring us to the household of faith. So there is no walls of separation between us and the body of Christ. 
And if we can live that out, the world will marvel that we have the solution to sexism, racism, prejudice, systemic injustices, because we proclaim the king and we live out his kingdom ethics, and they will be baffled that we have the answer to life's quandaries socially. But if we ain't making disciples, they're never going to know. It also includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And baptism means to immerse somebody or something into something else. The Greek word in literally means into. So all believers are baptized into the body of Christ when we embrace him as Savior. There's a spiritual baptism and a physical baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into the body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So the moment that we receive new life in Jesus, we are baptized and immersed into the body of Christ. And that's the beauty of physical baptism is that it is symbolic of the inward change and us spiritually being baptized into the body of Christ. And physically, we are now pronouncing publicly that I am different. I am affiliated. I am a part of the body of Christ. And baptism for the local church literally is this, that as we celebrate God's work in the life of this new Christian, as they are baptized to symbolize their death and resurrection, as they are baptized into the body of Christ, we are baptized into the work of discipleship. So we corporately don't just cheer and give them a certificate. We are saying it is our responsibility as your local church to raise you in the faith and never see you fall through the cracks. If we took baptism as serious as it is mandated, it wouldn't be something that we compartmentalize. It wouldn't be just about statistics that we report. It would be telling us that this is an awareness that Jesus has blessed us with a new believer. And inasmuch as you would hopefully not turn your back on a baby that was laid on the doorstep of this church, that you would not turn your back on a new saint that God gives life to eternally in your midst. And you say, we will not let you fall through the cracks. It's not just their moments. It is our moment. This is what Jesus has called us to. And as we live that out, he is with us for all the ages. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That means that we are to teach the new converts the spiritual and social commands of Jesus, not separating the two. Spiritual, which means we must repent, love the Lord, follow Jesus, deny ourselves, do not covet, await his second coming. All of these commands Jesus has given in the Gospels, but he's also given social commands. Keep your word, love your enemies, love your neighbor, honor your parents, honor the covenant of marriage as God has defined it. Pay your taxes, give to the poor, forgive others. It's not just this spiritual personal experience that has to be privatized. It is something that naturally we talk about. Something we naturally live out to show the onlooking world the kingdom ethics of the Lord and Savior that we proclaim that we know. And when they see that, prayerfully the Lord will draw them to jealousy to say, I want to be a part of this coming kingdom. And Jesus comforts us by saying, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises us that he is going to be with us for the whole of every day. As the worship team comes up, I want you to, to, to wrestle with that. The fact that Jesus will never abandon you. 
The fact that the love of God the Father does not fluctuate with your obedience or disobedience to the command. Because I'll be the first one to admit honestly, I have not lived this command out perfectly. I have not. In fact, even my sinfulness and my carnality, that I choose comfort of self over the commission of my Savior, has been far too many times that I can count since I've been walking with Jesus. But the reality is, all of my deficiencies, all of my disobedience, points me back to the perfect life of Jesus Christ. He is the model of discipleship. And knowing that he lived the perfect life that I could never live, knowing that he died in my place and took the execution sentence that was due for me, knowing that he rose from the grave comforts me that I can freely confess my disobedience to this passage and confess my sin and repent, which means now I change the dynamic of my lifestyle to walk in obedience. And the fruit of repentance is making disciples. So no matter where you are, no matter where you've been, this is a call to faith and repentance. This is a call for you to analyze your life. This is a call for you to analyze, have I been a faithful steward of the gospel? Who in my life have I genuinely discipled in obedience to the word of God? How long have I been walking with Jesus? And is there a legacy of believers that God has privileged me to rise up that I can say with obedience, yes, I did this. If that is you, Praise be to God. Don't stop until you see your king. If that is not you, don't beat yourself up. Don't allow guilt to paralyze you. Don't let your heart grow hard. Take this as a comforting, gentle rebuke from your Savior to make it right with him. And as you're going forward from this moment, make disciples. He's giving you the opportunity. Let us pray. Father, I pray that during this time of singing and reflection that you would speak to us and you would highlight, Lord God, the things that may be embarrassing for us to think through, the failures that we can either be convicted by and come to the cross or we can allow ourselves to sit in condemnation that is not due to us. I'm comforted by Romans 8, 1 that tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means, Father, you have no wrath to give your children, but it's a comforting word of discipline and correction that you give us when we're not walking in obedience. So may we be comforted by knowing that we serve a God that freely forgives us, loves us, and gives us the grace to walk in the fruits of repentance. And if there are any here that do not know Christ, Father, I pray that you would draw them to Jesus, that they would hear the truth of the gospel, that you know their sinfulness and you love them. You demonstrated your love for them three millennia ago by allowing your son to take the punishment that they deserved. And he rose from the grave showing that he now gives life to those who come to him. So may they drink freely from the waters of living life found in Jesus and may they come to Jesus. For it is in his name we pray.